You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, as always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we're joined by Derek Clifford, who's the founder and CEO of Elevate Equity. Derek, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us today. It is an honor to be here, Sterling. Glad to be here. Awesome. Derek, can you tell us a little bit about your past, what you did before real estate, how you got involved, and what you're doing today? Sure. So when I started off, I graduated from school as a chemical engineering major and then got myself an MBA, started working in the engineering industry, and then eventually found myself working as a project manager at a utilities company in California. And I was working in the W-2 world for quite some time. Um, So as I realized, um, I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that completely changed the trajectory of my life back in 2016, I believe. Uh, thanks to my lovely wife, um, who is my better half in many respects. And as soon as I read that, I realized that I had to do something different. And so I started looking into investing in real estate on the side. The problem was, is that I was living in the Bay Area at the time, in the California Bay Area, where average house prices are a million dollars plus, And I couldn't even afford to invest in my own private residence. So it forced me to start looking elsewhere. And then I found some places to invest after talking with some investors uh, outside of the state, uh, in the Midwest and in the South. And so that's kind of how the whole thing started. So I still am very much a project manager and process oriented and an engineer at heart, but I love building portfolios and uh, investing in multifamily. Now, Derek, you said that you got an engineering degree and then an MBA and then spent many years in, at a utility company. You don't really look old enough to have spent that many years. How old are you? <laughs> I really appreciate that, man. I love this podcast. This is great, man. <laughs> uh, I am 36. I'll be 37 in uh, one month from now. As a matter of fact, exactly one month. The 22nd of January is my birthday. Awesome. It must be all the intermittent fasting. Sorry. Yeah, it could be. Or it could be Sterling that I'm married to a naturopathic doctor. That could also be it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, you were telling me before we, and I hate, I, I hate doing this, but uh, we started chatting before the show started and uh, I always love to ask all the questions on the show. So I, I usually kind of skip straight through it because I'll get, you know, five minutes into a really great conversation. I'm like, oh, everybody should be hearing this. Let's hit record, you know. So um, when we started, you said you just exited your, your W-2 job, which is awesome. Congratulations on that. Thank Can you. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that transition, um, what your metrics were to feel comfortable exiting that? Because, I mean, a project manager, an engineer with an MBA, mm-hmm. I would imagine you had a pretty healthy W-2 income. You know, um, what is what do you need to be able to feel comfortable walking away from that? And how did you achieve that? Yeah, no, thank you. So I get this question a lot, um, but I'll be honest with you. It starts with the mindset. A lot of people here in the United States, when they start thinking about W2 exit, um, they wonder how they're going to be able to do all this with all of the bills that are being paid. Right. And so that was kind of where my wife and I started. We decided to basically um, start from the beginning and figure out, okay, well, how much do we need to be able to escape and what skills do we have that when we do make the escape, we can actually run with it. Cause it's very, it's ill-advised for anyone, especially as a prepared person like me um, to escape a W2 position and not have any skills to take that outside of the workplace or, or, you know, run with something outside of that. So um, 
we've determined we had the skills. We had the burning desire from Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich to do something different. And we've already been doing it for many years. So what we did was we looked at our expenses and we said, all right, what would we need to do to live bare bones, right? And exit the W-2. And just another credit to my wife, like she was the one that was even pushing me along to make this possible. I was the one making a lot of the income I was making a six plus figure salary at my, at my work with all the benefits and the golden handcuffs that come with it. Right. But she encouraged us to think about the freedom, the things that we could do if we were to leave. And so that got us to get creative to think about, okay, well, how much do Airbnbs cost or how much could we live if we were outside of California? And it turns out that the number was half of what we currently had to pay in a, for our mortgage and basically living in one of the most expensive markets in the United States. So we did the calculus, we sat down and we said, all right, well, this is how much money we can make. And then when we sell our house, which is also what we did, how much cash or runway would we have to make the exit? And it turns out that we can live off of $3,000 a month very easily um, in Indiana. That's where a lot of our rental portfolios are. And that's where we plan on eventually uh, settling down to, at least for a while, to build it, to build the portfolio. Go ahead. Let me understand. Are you homeless? <laughs> the, the term Sterling is unhoused. <laughs> so yes so we basically everyone asks us if we have an rv that's incorrect we have a crv uh where we basically put all of our personal you know belongings into and travel from place to place and so we're on our 18th airbnb right now and this whole adventure started back in may uh when i left the left the job in august but i was able to because of the work from home thing i was able to work from home for a little bit of that and then finally pulled the plug in august um but in any event um, there's gotta be tr some sort of translatable skills that you have before you make the leap. So you have something to work on when you do make the leap, because if you make the leap and then you escape and then you don't know what you're, what you're going to do with it, that's back kind of, again. yeah, you, you got to go back to the W2. And that's also the other thing that I figured is, you know, once our mindset got right to the fact that we got our heads around losing a source of income coming in normally and jumping into the fact that we just have like a cash reserve and that's all we have. And then getting, getting past that fear and understanding that in any situation in the past, I've always landed on my feet before, and this shouldn't be any different at all. And worst case scenario, if there was a ripcord that needs to be pulled, I can just go get a job again. It's not a big deal. So that's kind of how we, we made that decision. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah. what, what did you support that decision with from, you know, from a, a technical application standpoint, was it long-term rentals? Was it Airbnb? Where did you get the $3,000 a month? Yeah. So we still don't have the $3,000 a month coming in reliably because we have rental properties that we had just 1031 out of and we moved into apartment buildings. So they were single family homes. Um, and then we've, we moved those over into uh, multifamily and a lot of them are joint ventures that are just starting to like get back up to that point and go above where we were before. Um, but it's, it's, it's unstable as it always is when you're first starting and you're getting tenants moved in and you're doing rehabs and all that, but, um, we're getting pretty close to a point where it's going to be stable. And then we also have um, a bunch of syndications that we're doing too, where we have acquisition fees and we have some other income coming in from those sources as well as my wife's business. Um, plus the fact that we have a nice little cash reserve from when we sold our house. So we really don't have any type of qualms about this whatsoever. We have plenty of sources of income. 
full control of our expenses and a nice cash reserve in case we need it. Awesome. So tell me more about the, the joint ventures and the syndications. What type of apartment complexes are you buying? Where are you buying them? How are you buying them? Yeah. So for the joint ventures, we're doing most of our stuff in, in the Midwest because the price to purchase ratio is just really advantageous price, out price there. Price to rent ratio. Correct. Yep. And so it just, it makes a lot of sense to invest in those areas. So here's what we do. And you know, this might be a little, a hint for you and your, and your, your listeners, but what we like to target is we like to target the 24 to 48 unit type properties. And while it's true, you can't get economies of scale on those and get like a property management company, a single property management company involved. What you can do is you can buy two of them right next to each other or right across the street or right in the same block. And what that allows you to do is when you go to sell, you can combine them as a single portfolio with a single property manager running all of them. So the cool thing about this is that you get to buy them at low prices because you're buying them from usually less sophisticated uh, owners, right? So you get to pick them up one by one. And then as you pick them up and stabilize them, you can rebrand them to be the same thing if they're on the same block or within a few hundred feet of each other, right? And so when you do that strategy, you can basically get away with calling it a single property, especially if they're back, if the parcels are backing up to each other, you can basically combine the parcels depending on what, you know, city or state you're investing in. That's an easy process to do or hard, depending on what your situation is, but then you get to run them like a portfolio. And instead of trying to sell or exit two properties, one for 40 units and one for 30 units, instead you can do one package of 70 units and run them together. And then that will get you more favorable exit prices as a seller. And as a buyer, it makes more sense because you can install a full-time PM to oversee both the properties that are acting as one entity. Awesome. I love it. And you don't have nearly the competition because most of the, the, the you know, big dogs are, are chasing the hundred plus units for the economies of scale. So, yeah, no, that's a, that's an excellent strategy we hear about all the time. And, and the mom and pops are not likely on the market where everybody that's on the market in, in 20, we're recording this in the end of 2021, where there's yeah. massive overprice, everything, everywhere. Everything. Yeah. And, and the cool thing is, the, the cool thing is when you buy from these mom and pop, like generally what happens is you're picking up at a low NOI, right? So all the properties have the low operating income because their expenses are just super inflated. And so if you have, you know, someone like a property manager who's on the management team and generally like the way we structure these is we have a property manager that we work with on the ownership side with another property. And then we have a property manager. Like, so we, we basically have a, a property manager as an owner, and a property manager as an operator on, on different properties and they swap, right? So that way we have two property managers checking each other all the time. And if there's an issue, it'll be easier to kind of untangle that later on. But it's really good to have a PM on your management team and your ownership team so that you can oversee what the other PM is actually doing operational wise, right? And look for things, look for red flags. I got you. So you'll... You won't that the property manager you have in the GP will not actually be the property manager of the property. Most times, yes. Oversee, there will be a checks and balance to the property Correct. manager. And then on the next deal, they'll be the property manager and you'll have the other guy as on yes. the general partner. Yes, sir. 
That's mm-hmm. awesome. I love that. Uh, yep. I'm gonna ta- I'm gonna take that back to my partners. We might steal your idea. That's uh... no, no worries. I think um, you know, I think doing something like that helps keep the balance in check, and then they know that they're that they're being watched, and it just keeps everyone like it, it keeps the circle of trust in there. Right. And, and you start to build a team and if you need to, then, you know, you bring them on as, or one on as an owner, and then you bring in a new property manager. If the other one isn't performing well, you bring in a new one and then the, the process starts over again. Right. But obviously you have to know these people for quite some time before you bring them into the ownership side. So that's why I always like to try them out on the property management side first and then have them help you out with acquisitions and be like, Hey, do you know any, any of the sellers who are wanting to sell? That's a perfect way to get them to go from the property management person to then jumping to the ownership side by saying, Hey, if you can help, you know, if one of your, your, your owners is wanting to sell to someone, maybe we can buy and cut you in as an owner. If you really want that way, all the incentives are aligned because we're all about trying to align incentives up so that everyone is wanting to do what's best for both them and the organization. That's just, I just felt like, you know, over the years, that's been the easiest way to manage incentives and keep people motivated to work well. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, your, your team, your, your, your company, um, what the general partnerships look like, what, you know, what involvement you have, what you prefer, you know, the different it's, it's such a team sport. You know, it's not like I buy, I, I buy and fix up a bunch of single family houses. And I do that by myself. But when I syndicate apartment complexes, I work with like four other guys, you know, and, yeah. and I, I enjoy certain aspects of it and they're better at certain aspects of it. So do y'all handle, are you a one-stop shop where you and your wife and your company handles the whole part of the process or do you have other partners in the general partnership? And if so, yeah. what's your, what's your favorite part of it? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, like I'm in the unfortunate situation, Sterling, where I love everything. I love, (laughs) I love the acquisitions. I love the underwriting. I love the asset management. I love investor relations, all those different groups I love. And we're just now starting to bring on individual team members in house for us to be able to offload certain portions of that. So while the company itself will still be one stop for everything. We're going to have individual team members. They'll be able to handle specific aspects and I'll be able to kind of drop in. And, and the way that we do that Sterling is that we create really strong processes. Like for instance, we have, um, you know, an asset management sheet where we have all of the property management statements, regardless of what software they use, whether it's, you know, Appfolio or they use real page or, you know, whatever, because these are smaller properties, not quite ready for like the bigger, professional property management, but we take all that and we put it into one place formatted one way and the entire rent roll, the entire, uh, dashboard, like the health of each unit is all, it spits out automatically from there. And so that allows us to really be able to get involved in everything and use data to help inform where we need to ask questions. So, um, I guess that's a long winded way of answer, a long winded way of saying, for our offerings, we do everything with us because we want to keep it in house and get the investor returns. But when we have investors who want to place capital, we'll find great operating partners and we'll be the capital partners to help put that in and then do some accounting for them as well in investor relations. So we're doing a lot of different things and we're growing really quickly right now. So we're in that phase where we're just trying to figure out what our special <laughs> um, sauce to double down on is. And we think it's asset management, but we just want to we want to make sure that we're growing with it. Yeah. You know what? It's weird. I found that I, 
I preferred like different roles in different asset classes. So like on the single family house cool. side of the house, I love acquiring. I love finding the deals. I love underwriting. I mean, it's easy to underwrite. It doesn't like mm-hmm. I'm super ADD. So if I stare at a spreadsheet too long, I'll start to gloss over, but I can analyze a single family house on the back of a napkin. So I just, I love going after them, but on the, on the, the large multifamily side, I much prefer the capital raising. I, I love talking to people. I love meeting with investors. I love, you know, explaining the high level, um, you know, perspective of how it works and everything. So I just always found that unusual that in different, in different asset classes, I have completely different roles that I'm more comfortable with. Um, yeah. You know, it's really cool. What I've, what I've found is that if you can find that one theme, that, that one common thread that goes through all of your different roles, right? Like then that's, that's your calling. And for me, I found that it's teaching actually, ironically. Um, and so being a teacher and, and showing our team members how to do things. Um, and then also of course, doing the work, like putting in, I, I was an engineer, I was a business person. So I love details and I love to dive in and that's kind of my downfall. Cause it's taking me so long to get this thing started and up and running. But now that we're here, I'm starting to delegate more and that's taking a mindset piece, but I found that my common theme is, is teaching. And so if I like teaching, then I can teach my team members how to do this and also build courses and then also teach investors how to, how to find right properties and what to look for. Even if it's not my own, um, I, I absolutely welcome people to send me prospectuses of other properties so that, and, and an investment offering so that we can kind of talk through it together. And I will tell them it, it looks like a good deal. So that's kind of my, that's my approach too. And I'm wondering, um, are you thinking just, I'm, I'm going to turn the question around and, and ask you the question. <laughs> Have you found something that you like? That's a common theme across all of your roles in the different asset types that, that you like to do. So I think a lot of what I like to do is, is, is inter- interfacing with people. So, you know, whether it's networking, capital raising, podcast it, it, any any you know part where it's inter, interpersonal communication versus you know i like systems i'm 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 not patient enough to sit down and build them i, I don't i don't you know i always say because I, I talk a lot about how i hate underwriting and people assume that <laughs> I, I can't underwrite i'm like well i mean i have an mba and a degree in finance like i can make my way through a spreadsheet if i need to it's just not what i enjoy doing mm-hmm. um so I, I, pref- I tend to prefer the interaction. You know, when I, when I say I enjoy the acquisition side of the single family, really the, all the acquisition side is, is building relationships with enough wholesalers to get them to send you. Bingo. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, exactly. So, so cool. I just find that the interpersonal thing on, on that side is what the interpersonal thing on this side is, you know? I think that's great. Yeah. That, and that's clear because that's what real estate investing is all about, right? Like you're, you're always, you're looking for, um, you know, connections, relationships, like building the, building the rapport. And that's ultimately what's going to make it all work, right. Is, is those personal relationships. So very cool, man. I'm glad you found that. Awesome. Like, uh, and, and to your point about teaching, um, I don't think I'm a good teacher. <laughs> I didn't think I was, <laughs> I, I didn't realize that until I started hiring people. And getting frustrated with them not knowing what to do and it becoming painfully obvious that they didn't mm-hmm. know what to do because I didn't properly show them what to do. You mm-hmm. know? Um, so that was, that was like a recent, like uh, kind of look in the mirror moment for me. 
I was, I was bitching to a friend about my new assistant, not knowing how to do something properly. He's like, well, did you, did you like step-by-step step sit there and show him how to do it? <laughs> and I, I was like, oops. No. Yeah. He's like, well, you're the problem, not him. I was like, oh man, that hurts. You've got some, <laughs> you've got some brutally honest friends. I love that, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I found that like when, you know, as, as we got our first uh, virtual assistant last year, um, onboarded, uh, I found that like I had a really good talent for teaching. And, and the reason that that came in is from my personality of always putting myself in someone else's shoes. Like that's just something that becomes natural to me. So whenever I'm like, you know, assigning a task to someone, I'm always asking myself in the back of my head, is this clear enough so that if I didn't know what I know, would they be able to understand what to do next? And often, oftentimes the case is no. And so then I go the extra effort to give extra resources and record myself. Like, you know, I'll just go on to, uh, onto loom or I'll take a zoom. Like I'll just do a screen share with zoom and I'll record myself doing the actual task and then linking to that in Asana and being like, here's how you do it. This is what I want you to do. Right. Oh, and that way it's absolutely crystal clear what it is that they do. And that gives a benchmark for them to ask questions that are relevant. <laughs> and sometimes my VAs will come back with questions and they'll be like, Hey, you know, why don't you do it this way? And I'm like, great idea. Let's do it that way. Let's do it your way. And oftentimes it's better than what I can come up with. I am going to steal that idea too. So you'll go through, cause there is a laundry list of things that I want my assistant to do that. I just don't have the time or energy or patience to sit and show him how to do. But if I recorded myself doing it on the computer, I would, I mean, what's the difference? There's really no difference. The other thing I would also recommend too, and this is my project management brain coming out here is have a tracking system for your virtual assistant so that you can see what they're working on and all of the commentary and the questions is collected in one place for that specific task. So whether it's a sheet, you know, Google sheets or an Excel spreadsheet, or if you're using something more robust like Asana um, or something like that, that just really speaks to my project management side, my slant, mm -hmm. right? Cause I really love to track things and I love details and, and all of that. And I'm a process builder. I know that some people like yourself are not process building and you don't like to do the details. So you can leave that to someone else, but you can have your virtual assistant create an Asana platform for you. You can say, Hey, here's the outcome I want you to do. Can you please create a platform when, where, when I assign a task to you, you document it. Right. And then you show me where you're working on it and just give me the access to it. So, you know, when you're working with the VAs, give them a result to shoot for. There's either a rudimentary thing that you want them to repeat over and over again, which is something that you screen record and do right. Your process, or there's a creative thing where you're like, here's the objective I want you to do. Here's the timeline, how long I'm giving you to finish it. And in the middle of the way, show me what you come up with. Right. And then there's a conversation back and forth and you're kind of co-creating this thing that is meant to serve you and also serve other VAs. And, and keep in mind too, when you build something like this, the whole objective is for it to be repeatable so that if that VA doesn't work out, you can get a new VA plugged into the same system right away. Sure, right. Sure. So that's that, what we've that, kind of perfected. That boils back down to the, the, I guess the e-myth, the whole methodology there. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. If you ever really want to, you know, be free from it all, you, you got to document everything very, very well so that 
anybody you rotate in or rotate out, you can plug in and you have it all right there. And, and I admittedly have not been that entrepreneur. I carry the whole world around in my head. And, and if I, I always yeah. joke with my wife that if I get hit in the head, like we could lose everything. Cause <laughs> oh like, my gosh. I, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. If I that's get a right. car wreck and get amnesia, like we're screwed. <laughs> oh man. So, you know, uh, you know, Sterling, maybe after the show, I, I can open the kimono up for you and, and we can, I can show you like what I do in a sauna and what I do with some stuff to make it repeatable because it doesn't have to be intimidating. You can have your virtual assistants build it for you, especially if they're process oriented, if they think like that. Right. Um, so if they don't think like you do, it'll be really easy for them to do it. It's just that you're projecting a difficult task when for them, it's actually easy. So, you know, just because you're a different person. So I'd, I'd be happy to share that with you. Um, awesome. And then, you know, maybe in the show resources, I can, I can make some, also recommendations for your listeners too, if they're interested. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So in the sake of time, cause I want to hit two more topics before we go to the radio round. The mm -hmm. first one is, can you, can you go through uh, one of your favorite deals for us? Mm -hmm. um, kind of what it looks like, how you found it, how you funded it, what the returns are like. Um, yeah. So I will do that real quick. Um, so it's actually kind of a nightmare property, but also a, it has a good ending. So the first, this was one of our, of course, it's always the first properties that you get in a new market, but it was the first property we got in, in Indiana, a multifamily in, in Indiana. And when we got that property, we knew we had to do a full gut on it. Um, we figured, cause we bought 18 units for $350, $350,000. So that's quite a steal, even for 2018. Sure. But the, the catch was that it needed a full rehab, right? It needed... Um, all the plumbing and all the electrical to get redone and all the interiors definitely need some love too. So we figured it was going to be 500 grand to do all this work, right. For all the units. Um, it ended up being like 800 K because we had PM steal from or not PMs, but like contractors steal from us. And yeah. it was just this huge mess. Right. But the whole, after the whole thing was said and done, after we got through everything and it took us about a year, about 18 months or so, 16, 18 months, um, to get all the units filled, uh, we were able to get a, an appraisal come in at 1.4 million. So nice. just to get this straight, we bought it for 350. We put about 800 K into it. And then we got a valuation of about 1.4. So that means that we were able to pay off all of our private notes, pay off all of our debts and everything, and then pull out all of our original capital. And so now the property is just kind of running on its own right now. Um, and so that's kind of like the, the success story. It's basically doing what you guys do on, you know, when you burr a single family house, sure. except we were doing it with an apartment building. And so, uh, there's a lot of work and stress and growing that went through that deal, but that was one where I could say that, you know, an infinite rate of return, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The other question I wanted to ask you is what, what, what advice do you have for somebody else that's just getting started? Think like, what, what would you have done differently from the beginning? Yeah, man, this is, this is, this is a really loaded question. I think the first thing is um, mindset. That's, that's the first thing. Sure. Um, there's a lot of fear in analysis paralysis that I had at the beginning. And I think that um, getting a mentor and, and putting some money in, to talk with someone who knew what they were talking about first to get your skin in the game in this whole real estate thing. 
um, that would have helped me out a lot. It would have shaved years off of my learning curve because, you know, as an engineer, as a PM project manager, um, I like to get into the details and learn a lot and overanalyze. And then I realized that I was, I was doing too much. What it comes down to Sterling and for your listeners, there's more to this, but I think this is all that we have time for is that when you're doing your first deal, you'd be impressed like how long it takes to get your first deal done. But once that gets done, then everything else is kind of like repeatable. So for that first deal, if you can shift your mindset away, if you're analysis paralysis person, shift your mindset away from trying to hit a home run straight out of the gate to instead learning something and knowing that it's a process that you'll repeat and your trust that like the values will go up over time. Cause that's what real estate does. You, fa- you fall into that trust and your mindset is there at that point. That's going to change the game for you. Because as soon as I realized that, that's like, you know, I'm just been, I've just been looking at numbers all day and I'm not doing anything. Like I have to do something. Cause at some point you don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. And so once you, yeah, it's all mindset. It's, it's the only it differentiator. That's and right. people don't realize that there are so many people that are way smarter than me that envy my success with real estate. And they're like, they're like, but I'm, you know, notably way smarter than you. Why can't I figure it out? And I'm like, well, it, it, the, the problem is you have all this mechanical knowledge, but you don't focus on developing your mindset in a way that motivates you to overcome risk. Cause that's really what it is. It's just, it's, it's, it's getting your head clear enough to be comfortable with taking action. hundred percent agreed. And can I add one more thing here too? Um, I think it's, it's also, yeah, it's, it's, it's fear. It's my, it's, it's just mindset. It's, it's the ability to, um, to take something and run with it. And if you're not committed and you don't have that, then there's no, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't work. There's no there's no point in moving forward because you, you have to work on your own brain to make it work. And once you can get around or convince yourself of the fact that it's a learning experience, you know, you're covering your downside somehow by just assuming you can get your money back out. Um, that's the thing. And, and I think people are looking for silver bullets, Sterling. That's what I think it is. I think people are looking for a quick, easy answer like a stock pick or something or something like that. And it doesn't work like that in real estate. And I think that's what, that's the real problem is that, you know, some of these mechanical minded people that think sequentially like me, I was looking for a silver bullet and I realized that it just wasn't there. There isn't any. Yeah. Yeah. The opportunities uh, disguised as work and overalls is the old saying. That's right. Opportunity looks like work, doesn't it? Yeah. So um, real quick, I, I want to hop to our radio round, uh, help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Uh, sure. First question is, what's your favorite book? Yeah. You know, man, there's so many. Um, I think that all time, it's the millionaire real estate investor um, or yeah, or the one thing, right? But nowadays, if I have to pick one, it is Who Not How by Dan yeah. Sullivan. Yeah, I just finished that. Great book. Awesome. Good stuff, man. What about, uh, what about your favorite quote? Yeah. So my favorite quote is kind of cliche. Um, but it, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's what I'm assuming. Um, but it is, uh, the journey of a thousand miles starts with the single step. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, embracing that and knowing that it may be a long journey and just being vested for the long term and taking action you know, with that first step by breaking it up into bite-sized manageable pieces, that's going to really get you somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. 
Awesome. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? What's outside of work? What is that? Right. No, I'm just we get a lot of that. Um, we get a lot of that. I- <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I really like to connect with nature. Um, I'm a big meditation person. I love top golf as well. I've never gone into a golf, a golf course, but I like top golf. If, do you know what that is? What yeah, top golf yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I love spending time with my wife as well. And then also my guilty pleasure is playing, um, video games, like playing civilization oh, five, man. like strategy games, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's really what I like to do on the weekends to decompress. Okay, cool. So how can our listeners get in touch with you and find out more about you and learn from you and invest with you? Yeah. Thank you, sir. Um, the easiest way to do that is to hop onto our website at elevateequity.org. Um, or you can just look me up on LinkedIn. Um, I'm constantly posting my podcast uh, episodes on LinkedIn and some extra cool content there. Uh, and then also on our website, we're linked to our book. Um, we have a book for full-time professionals that want to invest part-time. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me, or you can just email me at Derek at elevateequity.org. Awesome. Derek, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed it. I, I say this all the time, but I learned a lot and I really am going to take it away. Um, I'm really, I'm really, really appreciate the, the nuggets and I'm definitely going to use the recording, um, tactic to, to train my, my assistants in the future Absolutely. as well as some, some other things. I don't usually re-listen to my podcast, but I'm going to listen to this one after it comes out because <laughs> I know there's some other gold in there. So uh, thank awesome. you. I'm so happy you reached out and um, look forward to keeping up with you on your journey. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sterling. It's great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at CrestworthCapital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.